All right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have a special guest, Dr. Stu McGill. How are we doing, Stu? Uh, I'm fabulous. How about you, Dave? I'm doing great. It looks Dr. like you're- Dr. Marconi. Uh, also, I'll be a, bit, a little bit respectful to start off. Yeah, yeah. I, I see some stuff in the background there. It looks like you're in at least some somewhat of a place of work, and I'm also just finishing up a day of work myself, so- Yep, not too many places with a exam table in front of a squat rack with a thousand pounds on it. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I actually first came across you, I don't know how many years ago it was now, uh, but Lane Norton had kind of a little documentary series where he had had some pretty severe back issues and you and Brian Carroll had kind of gone through with him and all of his issues. And that was the first time I had really seen you. And then I had heard about you a number of times after that. So that was kind of the first exposure. Uh, and then in more recent years, just, you know, as I get older and I kind of want to make sure I stay ahead of the, you know, the back pain issues, I got your book, Back Mechanic, and I, I spoke with Brian. Um, so we have a lot lot to go into, but you've been in the space for a very long time, right? Uh, well, I was a professor for 32 years and I retired uh, seven years ago, at least from the university. I still see uh, special clients now. But uh, so I, I guess uh, over 40, well, about 40 years, I suppose. Yeah. 41, actually. Now I'm doing the arithmetic. Yeah. So where in your journey did you actually start focusing on back pain specifically? It was my uh, PhD, actually. Uh, I uh, was actually going to the University of Waterloo for systems design engineering. And I met a professor at a hockey game uh, and uh he said, why don't you come and visit my laboratory? I'm just starting spine stuff. And I stayed at his house for three days and uh, was actually finishing up my master's degree. And I was using some of his equipment. And uh, we just hit it off and decided that uh, the PhD is going to be on spine biomechanics. So there was no planning. It was just one of those things in life where you make a decision and uh, things work out. I was going to, like you mentioned just working out. So I know when I thought about going to med school and I thought about being, you know, within like the sports medicine world. And then I kind of said, okay, well, a lot of it was orthopedic and, and surgery and whatnot. And I didn't want to do that. And then when I kind of looked more into working with high level athletes, it seemed very niche. Like there was not a clear path to say, okay, well, I'm just going to do well in school and apply to this residency and then have that. You kind of had to know somebody who knew somebody else, et cetera. So how did you kind of, I don't know if there was maybe an aspect of luck or just, you know, your specialization that you worked with some world renowned athletes. Was it mostly connections? No, I would say zero connections. Uh, when I was a young professor, uh, I, I remember my supervisor telling me, don't ever uh, get involved with athletes or sport because you'll be poor for the rest of your life. <laughs> None of them have money and the sport organizations don't direct money towards uh, scientific study and, and this kind of thing. Um, however, uh, I began asking one question in our laboratory and, and experimental research clinic. And that really was, how does the spine work? How does this flexible rod uh, stiffen up 
to bear, say, a thousand pounds under a barbell for a, a squat, and then allow the person to bend and be flexible to tie their shoe. And, and uh, so it was a, a really a marvelous engineering challenge to try and unravel how all of this worked. And then I would get invites from different groups, uh, medical groups, orthopedic groups, neurology, uh, et cetera, uh, come and tell us what you've learned about the spine. And they would say, oh, well, would you see a patient uh, for us that is uh, a bit of a challenge? We're not having success, but what you just talked about maybe uh, would unlock some of the uh, uh, mystery to it all. And sometimes it was a high performance athlete. And then I realized that they knew how to assess at a very, very low level. They were assessing sick people, very fragile. And then a power lifter comes in who really only has back pain when they squat over 600. Uh, but they had no uh, reference point, I suppose, or specific skills to, to provoke that kind of pain at that level. And uh, I've always enjoyed, uh, I'm not a sport fan, but I certainly am uh, just, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I have an aptitude, I suppose, to seeing speed production, where an energy leak is in a person's body. They might push and the shoulder collapses and mm. the performance decreases, or the posture changes, and I watch the... Uh, load migrate from one tissue to another and then the person says ouch and <laughs> um so uh, i was not always but occasionally able to offer a little bit more for these very unique situations and then it's funny say you work with a professional basketball player everyone knows he's the player who struggles with his back and then all of a sudden he's playing with resilience he tells 10 people now I've got 10 NBA players right, on my right. tour step the next week. And uh, then one of them has a cousin in the NFL. And then another one is in the UFC. Or, you know, it just, and then it just snowballed. So uh, now I can't really think of an Olympic sport where I haven't uh, seen, uh, uh, you know, what today was, uh, uh, you know, an Olympic uh, volleyballer. And next week is a pro tennis player on Monday. Um, uh, uh, a medalist discus thrower I had a couple of weeks ago. Uh, anyway, it just n never stops. It seems. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, that's awesome that you've, you've built that reputation. And I think, you, you know, you mentioned how some of these other doctors, maybe they, they weren't qualified or they had maybe just the, the general population is what they were used to. And I think that is a frustration with people like myself and obviously, you know, cer certainly some much higher level athletes where you go to physicians in the, you know, given field and they're just used to general population. So they might say, well, everything seems fine. And you're like, well, I don't want to just be fine. I want to be elite in whatever that is, or, Hey, you know, I want to be able to lift this much weight. And they said, well, just, just stop lifting it. So that's not an answer. And it can be difficult for people who want optimality to, just kind of go with the, I would say, general practitioners who just aren't used to that population. And you really have to kind of do your own research. And like you said, like find somebody who is doing something you want to do and get that connection there rather than just kind of go on, you know, whatever your insurance is telling you to go to. Yeah. When a client tells you, uh, 
I want my world record back. Mm-hmm. That's a very different enterprise than, uh, you know, I uh, want to be able to uh, drive to the store to pick up my groceries without debilitating pain, sure. uh, which is a challenge. I'm not dismissing that at all. The, the foundation starts there, of course, but uh, to expanding it to be uh, in a context for a person who says, I, I am going for the world record here. Yeah. <laughs> Not interested in picking up my dog's bowl. <laughs> do you do you start with a similar assessment? Like, you know, 40-year-old, not super active person comes to you, says, I have some back pain versus elite lifter comes to you and says, I have back pain. Is there a general assessment you start with or are you kind of just, you know, I'm obviously going to be individual, but are there some commonalities? Right. Most people are told by the traditional medical system that they have nonspecific back pain. This does nothing to give them guidance as to what is the specific cause and therefore what is a specific strategy to wind down or or avoid the cause and wind down the irritation, build some general pain-free abilities, and then tune the body for the performance that it's capable of. So that that's a very different uh, algorithm, shall we say, or approach than what they would get. Oh, you've got mechanical uh, back pain, or let's go back another step. You've got nonspecific back pain. Try chiropractic, or go to the physio, or do Pilates exercises, or try acupuncture, or whatever it is. Which, in a specific context, may be the right prescription. But uh, in our world, back pain is highly specific. So to really answer the question now, every person who comes in here, we start with an interview and I learn about their patterns and current training habits, uh, if any. Uh, What are the exacerbators of their pain in terms of motions and postures and loads and activities? What things can they do that make them feel good? And I'm doing pattern recognition. Then that's all done upstairs. Then we come down here and on the patient table and on the stool and the chair, or maybe under a bar, or uh, uh, again, whatever uh, we might use, we will provoke the pain very specifically. We're mapping the stress concentrations and seeing what causes them to say, ouch. So we might, uh, a very simple one, beginning one might be, they'll sit on a stool and they slouch and they'll say, oh, my left, great toe just went numb. Okay, I already know it's the fifth lumbar root on the left-hand side. And then I say, now lift your head up. And they'll say, oh yeah, that's the familiar pain I feel at the top of my lumbar spine. Okay, there was no mechanical connection there, but we allowed the nerve root or the, the central cord, pardon me, to slide past that area. Then we'll follow up with some Neuro, neurodynamics tests to see if, in fact, uh, well, the athlete I had today had uh, two mechanisms, an ache in their back, which was due to a micro movement. So the joint had lost a little bit of shear stability, a lot, a little bit of disc height. And if they move to a certain posture, the ache would start. They move to another posture, corrected the micro movement, and the ache went away. But they also had a referred pain. They said, oh, I've got sacroiliac pain. But when we tested very specifically loading, bending uh, the sacroiliac joint, no pain was produced. However, 
uh, uh, that 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 was a neural referral uh, as well. So anyway, you, you kind of get the the idea. We yeah. we keep testing and honing, creating a, a hypothesis and testing it. Uh, and a lot of our uh, tests we've had to create our, ourselves. They aren't standard medical tests. Yeah. I, you briefly mentioned, you know, like chiropractors and acupuncture and. Uh, not to, uh, you know, get anybody flaming over this, but in, I wouldn't even say recent years, just for a long time, those, let's call them specialties have been kind of lambasted as full of charlatans and, and kind of a lot of pseudoscience. I've been to chiropractors in the past, and I've seen some that seemed very knowledgeable and some maybe that was a little bit, um, I, I would say like, you know, woo woo, we <laughs> can call it, but I, I was just wondering if you have a general opinion, do you find that you ever have referrals from or to chiropractors and acupuncturists or, or do you, is that kind of outside the realm of what you find useful? Oh no, I, I'm referred patients from chiropractors regularly uh, and it can go the other way, but I'm going to start that little train of logic with what is a chiropractor? If we took three chiropractors and sent them the same patient, do you think they would get exactly the same uh, treatment? And I would submit no. In right. one, they might get manipulated. In another one, they might get uh, corrective exercise. In another one, they might get TENS therapy or a combination of all of those things. So I don't really know what a chiropractor or a physical therapist or, or anyone else is by the label of their profession. What I do know is who is good and who I can trust that they have a well-rounded uh, education plus uh, clinical skills. So I'll finish that off with an example. Um, I remember an Olympian that we had who uh, really was triggered under compression and bending. So they couldn't squat. It was difficult for them to push a sled. And, and they were a power athlete. And they, they, you know, in order to win at the Olympics, they would have to uh, develop this capability. But how to do it? Anyway, we were able to first give them appropriate deloading and then retune their body with appropriate stability, mobility, strength, and endurance but all the time, there was a little nag in one of the quadratus lumborum muscles on one side. And as try, try it as hard as I could, I, I couldn't move it. It was always in the way. And I didn't have the manual skills or anything to really target that particular muscle. So I sent them to uh, a, a, one of my colleagues who uh, is a chiropractor and three treatments, it was gone. And they were mm -hmm. back in the next Olympics. Now, <laughs> they ended up blowing their Achilles tendon, but, you know, okay. anyway, the, the story is that the referrals go both ways. Mm. And uh, I, if, if you look at the clinicians on our website, who we refer people to, quite a few of them are uh, chiropractors. And I would submit in uh, most of the situations, the patients uh, shouldn't expect manipulation. Mm. Yeah. But having said that, I, I, there are a few, few gurus who can uh, make uh, quite an impressive difference. But if all they do is manipulate and send the person on their way, I have a problem with that. Right, right. Yeah, it seems like similar to medicine. I mean, there, there's, well, I would say maybe in medicine, there's a little bit more of a 
a standard of practice. And I, I think at least again, you know, limited experience on my end, but the chiropractors I've talked to and seen it, there just seems to be a very wide range of those who are just kind of, like I said, I've seen, I, I knew of one chiropractor, unfortunately, who basically just had high school and, and college assistants kind of doing these things for him and kind of just billing these out to insurances. And I've seen others who kind of took that degree and then became much more knowledgeable and, and seemed to implement best practices. So. Uh, agreed. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about these high level athletes and I'm curious, I've in recent years when talking to one of my buddies is a, um, he's a PMR specialist of people who are listening physical medicine and rehabilitation. And um, this person has really put a negative light from what I've seen on surgeries, showing that a lot of back surgeries uh, basically lead to no positive outcomes, sometimes negative outcomes, that it, there's very few instances where it would actually be warranted. Uh, now, obviously, quote unquote, back surgeries entails a lot of different potential surgeries. But um, from reading your book, it doesn't, it seems like maybe you're on the same page there, that there's very few circumstances where you feel somebody has to resort to surgery. Would you agree with that? Could I give a little bit of a paragraph on that? Because I uh, dedicated a whole chapter on the patient trying to wrestle with the decision on whether surgery is going to help them. Yeah. So uh, starting with that, I'll give some generalizations. Generally speaking, if the person has back pain, my first inclination is to see, can we avoid surgery? If they have radiating symptoms, now there may be uh, a consideration. So that's the first level right there. Don't operate on back pain, uh, radiating uh, considerations possibly. Now this is for uh, mechanical back pain. If they have been traumatized in a car wreck or something like that, and there is fracturing or displaced anatomy, then of course, surgery is the right thing to do. Occasionally, we will have someone here and the pattern doesn't fit. Someone might, uh, well, this one that she clearly frustrated the medical profession, uh, she would uh, do the slump test, the physical therapy slump test. Mm -hmm. No pain, no symptoms. And yet she said, well, I can't drive. My leg goes numb. I, I can't stand it. And she was accused of malingering and trying to uh, game the, the compensation system and whatnot. Yeah. And when I did uh, the slump test, sure, no symptoms. But then I, what we do, we call playing jazz. We played jazz on the whole uh, neurodynamics system. And a slump test flexes the neck and pulls the spinal cord from above, but the hip is flexed, the knee is extended, and it pulls the spinal cord from below. So in the middle, around the low back, the net migration or floss of the nerve is zero. But that's what the slump test did. It was a it, it was an inappropriate test with no sensitivity for that particular specific mechanism. Then I just pulled on the leg and kept it there and the symptoms started to grow. Her foot and le leg went numb, et cetera. Uh, I then released it from above to allow it to slide and it made it worse. So if she had a disc bulge or some kind of nerve friction, that should have relieved the pain, but it made it worse. I knew what I was looking for. Something had adhered the nerve around the low back 
uh, pelvic area. I then went to the MR because I knew what I would find. And of course, there was a Tarloff cyst inside the sacrum, eroding the bone, holding the nerve. So it wouldn't slide. And if you sat in a car <laughs> uh, uh, just from one direction, that caused the symptom. So there would be an example. Uh, I can't do anything about that Tarloff uh, cyst, except occasionally if we if we don't load it and just teach the person to move in a way not to upset it, it, it can desensitize on its own. Mm -hmm. This one clearly was not. And there is a, uh, a surgeon who uh, I referred quite a number of patients to over the years, who's a specialist with a yeah. very special technique for that, for that particular cyst. So these are all examples where surgery absolutely uh, has its place. But now I'm going to play the other side of the coin. Um, I often see patients who I am sure should never have had surgery and now they're worse off. But if a person who uh, has tried these different approaches to uh, uh, fix their back pain uh, and someone tells them, well, you've tried everything, surgery is the last resort, I'll say, no, you haven't tried everything. Sometimes surgery works because it's forced rest. Now, let's do the interview with them. Oh, well, uh, what do you do every day? Well, I go to the uh, gym and I ride the elliptical for 20 minutes because that's how I relieve tension. And if I don't relieve the stress, I'll come home and I'll murder my husband or whatever the, the situation is. And I'll say, so every day you ride the elliptical. Yes. And then I, I just test the stresses akin to riding an elliptical. And guess what? That triggers her pain. Mm. So uh, now we have a problem. Uh, she says, well, I, I have to ride the elliptical every day. And I say, all right, uh, then I don't think I can help you. And I'm quite sure uh, your, your pain is going to stay the same. You can have surgery, but you're a very bad bet. And uh, they, they may take offense at that. Then I'll say, but I'll tell you what, surgery will probably work on you because it'll be the first time that you're not going to the gym. You will be lying in bed the next day. You'll get up and go for a pee and then you'll get right back to bed and relax. And slowly uh, you will be introduced to very simple activities of daily living, like walking and toileting yourself and all of that kind of thing. I said, let's pretend you've had surgery. And if I need to be dramatic to make my point, I will. I will touch them on the shoulder like I'm knighting them. And I say, good, there. Now you've had your virtual surgery. You're going to start behaving like a post-surgical patient. And we will bring you back slowly. Now, um, Dave, one of the things that we did at the university in the research clinic was we followed up with every patient that we ever saw. So I know my clinical score. Exactly. Yeah. And I can now tell you that those who we gave virtual surgery to, and they followed up with it, 95% of them avoided surgery. And these wow. were ones who were told the last thing that you have uh, with it for, for any hope is to have surgery. 95% of them avoided it. And I can stand by that statistic because we measured it. So there's the other side of the coin with uh, surgery as well. But again, in the book, uh, if they fail virtual surgery, and that happens too, uh, I then give guidelines to enhance success. 
If you have three different pain triggers, the chance that a surgeon's knife is going to cut that out is very, very slim. If you have a singular nerve trigger, your chance for success goes way up. Um, uh, what's the reputation of the surgeon versus reality? Um, if you can, go to the rehab people who rehab that surgeon's patients, mm -hmm. and they will tell you, uh, surgeon X, we never have a, uh, uh, a complication from that surgeon. And, and literally, it's never. And then the next surgeon, oh, in the last two years, there's been three cases of arachnoiditis, adhered nerve roots from surgical scarring. In other words, uh, three to one or three to zero is, is, is pretty hard to be bad luck, that yeah. surgical skill. So there's all sorts of things. Oh, and, and another thing, some surgeons, if, if the patient starts asking them questions about efficacy and whatnot, they get annoyed. I'd run the other way. Hmm. You know, uh, everyone deserves to uh, have a, uh, uh, an idea and a, a, a truthful idea. Well, what, what is success? Now, success to some people, well, you didn't die on the surgical table or right. no, you're, you're, you're back uh, as a running back uh, playing college or pro football. Anyway, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. So we go through uh, the, the, this checklist, so to speak, to really uh, weight the dice in your favor for this decision. Are you seeing, you know, you mentioned some of the potential negatives. Are you seeing a lot of people who have gone through these back surgeries having pretty severe negative consequences afterwards? I mean, you know, I've, I've heard of, you know, random paralysis and things like that. Are you seeing really detrimental consequences to surgeries or is it mostly just ineffectiveness? I see ruined lives. Someone has a, a nerve root adhesion and they do this and it causes terrible distal symptoms down their leg and they're on the verge of suicide. I'd say that's very uh, substantial. Now, yeah. to give perspective on that, Dave, uh, I don't see the successes. They don't come to me for that. Right. I don't right. see the Fair. failures. And the average failure, I don't see. Again, they would go to, a, no one gets back pain and says, oh, I'm going to go and see McGill. Yeah, they right. Always, they'll go to their usual uh, medics and clinicians, and then it's the medics that know me, not the not the public. And then the medics will say, "Okay, well, this is a very difficult case. Go and see McGill." So I, I get the very challenging cases. So I think it's very biased. Yeah, sure. Uh, and slanted towards. I, I see the pretty severe cases. Right. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think that that probably gives a lot of people a hope if they've been dealing with chronic back pain, because I've heard of people who have seen you or read your books and whatnot, and, and other instances where after years and years of pain, where I, I've also seen people who will become suicidal, not, not just from back pain, but, you know, any sort of chronic pain, there's a very big difference between acute pain, even if it's a eight out of 10 acute pain, I would say is probably better if it's, you know, a sudden thing and then done compared to a chronic four or five out of 10 pain, that just is you know, relentless and just continues. And then maybe certain actions cause it to go up to an eight and it never ceases. And I'm sure you see many of these cases that it's just kind of ongoing. So to feel like, Hey, no, there are these other things that can be done is, you know, probably nice for people to hear. Uh, well, I, I don't quite know how to uh, answer that, but some of the 
questions that I might ask is, is your pain episodic? Do you have good and bad days? And if the people say yes, I'll say fabulous. You biologically and psychologically have the ability to have a good day. Now let's hone in on what causes you to have a bad day. And they'll might say, oh, well, you know, I drive for three hours to go visit my mother. And I always have a bad day after that. Well, mm. no one's ever asked them or they haven't really honed in themselves that sitting in the car for three hours causes their disc bulge to grow and compress uh, a particular nerve root as a, as a simple example. Or um, let's pick something that they can really do something about. Uh, I might do a shear stability test on their back. So I'll probe the spinous processes with about a kilo of force and I'll hit one segment that just lights them up. Their back muscles go into a spasm and they'll say, oh yeah, 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 that's my pain. It just went down my right buttock. I said, okay, um, humor me. I poke my fingers into their abdominal wall, lateral to the navel, quite wide, and I'll poke them in hard and I'll say, push my fingers out with your belly muscles. And then I'll repeat the probe on their back. And sometimes they might say, oh, you know, my pain is gone. So good. You are now empowered. Uh, the psychological dissonance, the pathway to you feeling suicidal disappears because now the pain just taught you you didn't follow a strategy that has just been pointed out to you that arrests the micro movement that triggers your pain. So it's very empowering for some people. Uh, other people, I might do exactly the same intervention and they'll say, oh yeah, no, no, that makes my pain worse. I, I mm -hmm. can't do that same abdominal muscle brace because of the compressive uh, penalty that comes along with that strategy. So we might find something else, whether it's a posture or it might be using the pecs and lats to pull down. Uh, you as a lifter know exactly what I'm talking about, forming the lifter's wedge and putting stiffness uh, into the spine from the uh, pec and, and latissimus dorsi muscle complex. Maybe that's the secret sauce. I don't know, but we'll test it and see if we can uh, converge. If we can't, it may be just a matter of deloading and allowing the pain trigger to desensitize and then rebuild from there. Something I, I find very that interesting. Just a, a, something just came into my mind there as yeah. well, depending on the trigger. Um, what we're all trying to do uh, is to stimulate adaptation towards robustness. Now, as a dentist, uh, I don't know how to adapt teeth. I, I think you just prepare them. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, pretty much. With, with, with bone, for example, the adaptation schedule, it's very different from muscle. It's very different from the collagenous tissues. But if you know what you're doing, uh, I know you uh, interviewed Brian Carroll, who uh, is the holder of the world's record squat. And he did that after a very massive uh, back injury. Now, he was very successful in um, employing the science of bone callusing to get the bone to callus, which is a, a five-day turnover cycle. You know, a bodybuilder, as an example, who's trying to build muscle will train three days a week. You know, Monday they lift, Tuesday they rest and fuel, allow the muscle uh, to, to uh, re-adapt and uh, causing it to grow. Uh, but you can't do that with bone. Uh, because the rate of micro damage from training every other day races ahead of, of the ability to 
rebuild a bony callus. Uh, rebuilding that robust callus takes about five days. So what Brian did was a five-day turnover cycle. So anyway, this is the uh, application of, of science to, to getting these various adaptation schedules uh, optimized for the particular person's uh, issue. Yeah. I mean, it's all very interesting. And I was going to say, one of the things that I find interesting about your approach is, you know, if if somebody came to a fitness trainer and they were a good fitness trainer, they wouldn't say you're going to do this one thing and it's going to be handled. It's kind of like, well, you have to make these changes to your lifestyle or nutritional approach. And then as long as you do that, things can be better. But if you stop doing that, things will get worse. And it seems like you're not trying to tell anybody you just do this one thing and we're going to solve it. Or obviously surgery would often be touted to some people as that you're saying we have to modify these behaviors and maybe we can get into posture in a minute here, but, you know, modify these movement patterns and more or less, I mean, it sounds like you're saying they have to stay modified and maybe over time you can gradually reintroduce certain things, but there is this overall modification. Am, Am I getting that right? Or are you saying that it's only for brief periods of time? Well, it depends. <laughs> it depends. Um, it, it, it's fun when I will see, say, let's take a combat athlete who is, uh, the strength of their combat arsenal is jujitsu. So jujitsu uh, is the science and the sports skill of putting an opponent into an awkward posture and then applying a very small load creates so much pain, the opponent submits. So that's the art and science of jujitsu. Some people do jujitsu on their body all day long and they don't realize it. Mm. So, uh, but you, you, you did say, does the person have to change their, their movements uh, for the rest of their lives? Maybe yes, maybe no. Although along, uh, there's a lot of change that goes over the life uh, cycle. So uh, generally not. But I might say uh, rolling on the mat, balling up, really flexing the spine for a jujitsu player who has a really uh, fresh disc bulge. There's no way they can train. There's no way they can get into that posture and hope to resorb the disc bulge. Mm. Um, it's, it's caused by uh, loaded flexion as an example. So what we might do is avoid that and do other training to allow the disc to gain some resilience. And then it might be that they can't train it every day still. However, they keep it for the competition. And uh, they've got enough skill and experience now that they train around it and then just probe into the uh, injury mechanism in the competition. So we'll, we'll do a fair amount of that as well. And uh, it's lovely to watch one of the uh, combat athletes then uh, competing. And I'm just seeing the movement flows that we taught them and uh, being so able to skillfully uh, uh, express them. Uh, I gave the athlete uh, client I had today the example, and you as a lifter will appreciate this. You may have seen on YouTube. uh, It's kind of fun. uh, This character dressed up with shaggy hair. I'm sure it's a wig and he's wearing a janitor's outfit and he comes in with a mop and he's starting to mop around the gym. And uh, 
these big hulks, someone in the corner is filming them and they're trying to deadlift, say 800 oh, pounds. I have they're, seen this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're struggling or they fail. And this small man comes over in his janitor's outfit, uh, puts the broom off to the side or the mop, goes over, picks up the 800 pounds, walks over and drops it over there. And everyone is just aghast at this. Yeah. But what is so curious is watch him then bend down and pick up his mop again. And he does a perfect hip hinge. Mm -hmm. In other words, whether he's picking up 800 pounds or he's picking up a broomstick, the pattern doesn't change. And this is all part of him keeping his resilience to uh, do the phenomenal athletic feats that he does. Yeah, I've seen a few of his videos. They're pretty entertaining because um, I, don't, I don't know how much he weighs. I think he, at least in some of the videos, he's like 165 pounds. Uh, but yeah, high, high level power lifter. And that is something that I've tried to do myself now where I, you know, I might be dumbbell rowing. 100 pounds or something but then i'll look and i'll go to pick up a 40 pound and i'll still okay i'll kind of make sure i'm you know hip hinging and bracing and i just try not to do any just you know any movements without some thought and i, I mean i had one dentist i knew who tore his bicep because he was just kind of moving a couch and wasn't really paying attention dog jumped on the couch tore his bicep he's out of work for months so obviously that's kind of like a freak scenario there but um i really try to be conscious with any sort of movement because I, I hear frequently it's when you're not thinking about it or, you know, even people who could be at you do an actual exercise, maybe you're bench pressing and because it's a lighter weight than your max, you're just kind of taking it off the rack and you're not thinking about it. And that's when you tear your pec. So I've heard a lot of those kind of scenarios. People may be surprised at some of the stories you'll have a very accomplished athlete who says, you know, Dr. McGill, I threw my back out sneezing. Yeah. Or I threw my back out when I was with my wife on Friday night mm -hmm. or what, whatever it is, very, you know, what you would consider a benign, safe activity. And yet here they are doing extraordinary things in their sport with their body. And uh, it was just that little instant in time where the motor pattern was a bit off. The posture was a bit off and they migrated the stress to a vulnerable tissue. Yeah. Are, are you finding that? I think Brian Carroll's in his, he's about 40, maybe early forties right now. Um, I believe he's in his early forties. Do you find that you're recommending to people as they get older, that they really have to modify how they're lifting? I mean, I think of, obviously there's a lot of ego lifting in high school and college that goes on and eventually you kind of end up paying for it. Um, I would say the general trend is that people, uh, it may be because of their injuries they have to lighten the loads a lot and change. But let's say even before an injury has ever occurred, do you find that for most people you would tell them to lift differently at, say, 40 compared to 25? Well, I could give several contexts to to answer that. Uh, a few years ago, you know, there's the NFL uh, Strength and Conditioning Coach Association, and uh, they brought me in as, the, as a keynote speaker there. And my topic was... How do you return a beast who plays in the NFL to civilian life? They've played 12 years in the NFL. Every year that they play in the NFL statistically is going to take some years off their life. How can you return them back to a somewhat normal civilian life to enhance their health? Uh, because believe it or not, it's a very difficult thing to do. 
Uh, it's very difficult for some of the large players to lose their weight and get back their uh, blood chemistry and uh, return their cardiac function to, to somewhat of a normality, uh, uh, et cetera. So that, that's one thing that we uh, get involved with uh, in these days. But I think maybe you're looking for more general uh, principles. I might say to one person, you don't need to lift anymore. Go for a walk, split your firewood, walk up a hill. This will allow you to keep your joints longer so you won't be getting new hips and knees when you're 50, as an example. Uh, but now I'll give you an example uh, of uh, a former Mr. Olympia who had a lot of miles on their body, a lot of repetitions of motion out of all of the joints. So interesting, it's the muscle bulk that holds their joints together. And then when they really start to lose muscle mass, the joints become a little bit unstable with shearing micro movements and they ache all over and they have to say, you know what? I have to lift a little bit. Otherwise I just ache like a son of a gun. Yes. You now will have to commit to maintaining a little bit of muscle mass yeah. <laughs> and, and, and keep training. So do you see for some, I'll say, no, you will be better off and you will enjoy being a grandfather better without lifting weights. And the next person, I'm sorry, with your history, you will have to keep a certain amount of stiffness and strength in your body to, to ache less. So very, very context specific, but there's two uh, different examples. You know, ball and socket joints are unique. Spinal joints are unique. Look at, uh, you will find this uh, in, in your career, Every decade, it's going to be a little bit harder to press weight over your head. Now, if you're lucky, you will be able to do it. But the more you do it, the more wear and tear on the shoulder. And it gets harder for former athletes to push overhead. Their shoulders have just had that much wear and tear on the rotator cuff. And, uh, you know, you get into my uh, era <laughs> of life. Um, it's, it's hard to, uh, deep squat. I cannot deep squat a weight anymore. I will be in so much pain. However, I will do one body weight deep squat a day. And when I go into the deep squat, that has to grasp, pardon the language, completely round out, flex your spine, let all the tension go, stay there for four or five seconds, slowly get, regain stiffness arch up, stiffen, pull your hips through, and stand up. So I can do one deep squat a day. Now, I know nothing in the science that says doing 10 deep squats a day with load helps preserve your ability any better than one full range of motion bodyweight squat. So just here, I'm, I'm, I'm changing too. When I was in my 30s, it was all about weight. Yeah, I didn't need mobility. God gave it to me. Now... It's not about weight. It's about preserving the mobility that I have left and doing the things that I want to do in life. So it, it very much changes. When you mobility say that, yeah, um, when you say that you would be in so much pain if you did a weighted squat, would, would that be back pain or what kind of pain would you be experiencing if you did that? Well, now I'm hip replaced. 
Okay. So I have to deal with uh, those and, and they will cause pain. My knees don't like heavy uh, weighted squats. However, I can walk backwards up a hill and still maintain my athleticism that way. So it's a very different tool. Um, uh, yeah, hill walking is uh, uh, fabulous. Uh, I, I can hurt my back if I uh, did uh, heavy. Now I developed uh, <laughs> through several injuries, uh, quite a substantial scoliosis. Okay. And now I'm losing height. I used to be well over six feet. I'm under six feet now. My All my spinal joints have lost a little bit of height. And now the scoliosis with the disc height loss has increased. And you'll see scoliosis progresses, generally speaking, in two stages of life. One when you're growing as an adolescent and the other as you're aging and shrinking. So uh, I can create the effects of a lateral stenosis if I put on too much weight. And, you know, I'm not 16 anymore, but uh, I'm well aware enough of the mechanism and know how to hack my way around it so I can still continue to chop my firewood. Yeah, yeah. Do these things that are much more important to me now than uh, a loaded squat. Well, that, and that's, you know, you mentioned the firewood and the other example. That's kind of what I wanted to go back to because honestly, this might be the first time I've heard in a long time. Of somebody you know so reputable saying that they think maybe even no weightlifting could be the answer as one gets older. You know, I, I think most people. I've, I guess, I should back up a little bit. You know, when I was a teenager, I remember seeing some of these big powerlifters, Dave Tate, and all that, and just saying like, "Yeah, like lifting heavy is completely fine." And so, you know, in my eighteen-year-old brain, I'm thinking there's no issues at all with super heavy deadlifts, and you know, even if my form isn't ideal, it's fine. And then as I got later to like my 20s and whatnot, I thought, okay, maybe that's not right because <laughs> I am hurting myself. And you can argue maybe my form wasn't perfect, but I'd hurt myself a few times. And I would think, well, pretty much every power lifter I've ever seen who was an advanced power lifter who was 40 plus years old was kind of riddled with injuries. I mean, pretty much that was the case. Uh, same with jujitsu, I should say as well. And so then I've had more of an open mind of, okay, maybe that's not ideal. And uh, if you if you're familiar with Peter Atia, he's, he's gotten a lot bigger in recent years and big on long. I'm going to be on Peter Atia's podcast next month. Oh, wonderful! Okay, well, tell him I said hello. <laughs> and uh, so you know, he's an interesting guy, and he is still big on weightlifting into old age. And you know, he, he talks about this, you know, this last decade of life and whatnot. So um, I just want to clarify: Are you saying that you think maybe towards a later age, a lot of people? potentially shouldn't be doing any uh, actual weightlifting? Yeah, some people, yeah. So uh, in my own case, you know, I've always had hands, but I've always split my own firewood. I, I live fairly rurally here. Most of the people that I know who are 90 years old and I want to be like, they don't lift weights. Yeah. Split their firewood. They shovel their snow. They live a physically challenging life you know they drag their boat down the beach and go fishing it's that's the kind of stuff I want to do so when I say I don't lift weights I better qualify that I live what I call the biblical training week there's seven days in a week two days a week I make sure I strength train now if I uh what did I do uh yesterday 
uh, oh, well, I, I sawed down two trees, bucked them up, and we cleaned up all the brush, threw it in the in a bushfire. And uh, it, it was, I didn't lift weights, but I lifted some uh, bucked up logs that would have been close to 100 pounds. Yeah, okay. Okay. So two days a week, I strength train. Now, I will come into BackFit Pro here, and yes, I will do some formal weight training and cable pulls and chin-ups and uh, things like that. Okay. Um, however, two days a week, I mobility train. So again, if I'm splitting firewood, I don't need any more mobility for my shoulders. I got it. Um, however, I'm getting a bit older now, and I'm getting a little bit more thoracic kyphosis. Mm. So I will do some thoracic extension. I do some hip mobility work just because of the trauma that they've uh, had. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty. Occasionally, if I've been sitting at the computer for a while, I will do some psoas uh, uh, lengthening yeah. uh, mobility drills. And then two days a week. I will do something very specifically with a cardiovascular focus. So if I haven't done anything and it's my day to do some CV, I will go for a bike ride. I will go for a swim. I will go for a cross-country ski, etc. But again, if I'm splitting firewood, I've checked all three boxes. It's mobility, it's cardiovascular, and uh, it's, it's strength training. But anyway, that's how I organize and think about uh, how I do things over those six days. Another trick is at my age now, I don't do two things. I Sorry, I don't do the same thing two days in a row because mm -hmm. I'll get sore. So I, it's a natural way to interval train. Yeah, right. Every major religion in the world has a day of rest. It is so wise, Dave. As you get older, take one day where you just let all the cumulative micro trauma in your body adapt and heal. And it is such a key to not letting anything run away into a soreness, uh, into a pain, and then into an injury pathway. So that's how I, I think about my uh, week. So when I say, yeah, I don't weight train and I don't think uh, uh, there's lots of people who I, I would suggest uh, let's deload for a while. How do you feel? Oh, the pain has gone out of my body. Yeah. But maybe squatting, deadlifting, and and uh, you know, uh, loading your joints at end range at, at this stage of your life uh, isn't the wisest way. Yeah, it's it's an interesting perspective, and like I said, I try to keep an open mind about it because for the longest time, as I mentioned, it was always no, like all that lifting is fine, and and obviously, you know, I still work out very heavy. I, I work out all the time, but it is something to keep in mind for longevity purposes. One of the things I think that's interesting with my career is that I see people from basically two years old until a hundred years old. And I don't think most people who are, you know, 40 and below really, you know, unless you're thinking about your own grandparents or you have a career where you're around elderly people, you just don't see the aging process fully. And, and even your own grandparents may not know about other people listening. But I think when you're a kid, you're kind of sheltered from the reality of what's really going on with your grandparents, right? You don't necessarily hear about all their health woes and whatnot. And so in my career, I am seeing the huge differences between somebody who is 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 and 80. And 
the differences between those who stay active and some of the correlations between what those who are still moving about. I mean, I have one patient who's 92 and he still plays tennis, but that's very rare. I mean, that's not the norm at all at that age. And it's just interesting. You, you talked about the people who you see who are 90, who are doing what you want to be doing. Um, and I just think a lot of people don't have that perspective unless, like I said, they're in a field that exposes them to that. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you, uh, on that, you know, uh, when I'm 80, I hope I can get off the floor unassisted. Yeah. That, that is a real hope of mine. Loaded squats now would probably reduce my ability of reaching that goal. Right. Right. Yeah. My hips are going to be even more stiff. My knees are going to be even a little bit more arthritic. Uh, if you were a orthopedic surgeon specializing in backs and hips, let's say, uh, and I've asked a lot of them, a lot of them are my colleagues, uh, or you just go and do a survey, look around their waiting room, who's in there. Generally speaking, it's a bimodal distribution. It's the ones who've rusted out. In other words, they haven't done anything and they've deteriorated into that condition. And they're those who've worn themselves out. They've done too much weight and mobility. Mm-hmm. The people who keep their modest athleticism for life from where I sit now at, in, in my age of observing this for 67 years, be modest in the middle of the road and you will keep that modest athleticism to be the most rocking grandfather on this planet. Yeah. But if you rust out or you wear out, you compromise that. I'm, I'm sure my dad is going to listen to this podcast and he's going to have a smirk on his face as he listens to this and thinks, you know, I was right telling you not to deadlift so heavy and go so crazy. My, with my, my dad told me exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Peter asked you a similar question, but do you have any hopes, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe in your lifetime or not, but in the next few decades that there might be some treatments or medications that are going to really slow this process down? I think it's an interesting area because it's not like, you know, high cholesterol, like hyperlipidemia, where you can have a medication that just brings that down or organ transplants. I mean, you're talking about this whole skeletal slow degradation over time. Any thoughts on that? Well, I have a couple and two things come to mind being a a spinophile. (laughs) Uh, The holy grail in my view for back pained and injured people is can you restore disc height? I worked on it for years in the laboratory trying to uh, create an artificial polymer to inject in the nucleus of the disc, plump up the height again, which restores the natural mechanics. Uh, that would slow down uh, arth- arthritis in the facet joints, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if you're asking me about a holy grail, uh, that would be it for spines, if, if I could only choose one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, we were talking earlier about sometimes I would recommend people uh, use weights. Other times I would recommend that they avoid them. If you get into the special situations of, of people losing mineral mass from their bones, so they're osteopenic, 
um, what is the real uh, trigger to bone growth? Is it heavy weight? Actually, it's the rate of force application. It's the acceleration. So simply walking with hard-soled shoes might be an example of a hard impact on the heel with every step. Um, because when you look at the uh, fundamental mechanism of bone growth, it's, it's usually involving piezoelectricity. In other words, the bones being a crystalline metallic structure. When you stress them, they build a, a piezoelectric charge, and that's what draws in the free ions of calcium and magnesium to uh, stimulate bone growth. Um, so would I, I, I would do that more with sort of impact weights. And as I said, walking with very hard sole shoes. I have a friend who's a uh, radiologist and he was diagnosed with premature um, osteopenia. And uh, he came to me and said, Stu, do you have any recommendations? And uh, I said, well, yeah. I, and I knew he always liked boxing and martial arts. I said, are your wrists good? Are they vulnerable? He said, no, my, my wrists and shoulders are pretty good. And uh, he said, you know, should I be squatting heavy? And I said, I, I don't think so. I would hit a heavy bag. Really wrap your wrists well. Don't hit it crazily, but just start getting some impact into your body. You know, after less than one year, David, he was clinically normal on his DEXA bone scan. Really? In, yeah. in other areas or like where he was osteopenic, not simply yeah. just where the impact was? Yeah, no, in his, in his body, I'm assuming they would have done vertebra. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I better be careful what I say. I don't know where else they did the bone density, but certainly in his vertebra. That's really interesting. What, do you know what the mechanism would be there? Yeah. Yeah. It's impact. Even though it's not direct to that area. Well, the shock wave travels down through the spine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we documented the shock wave and the transfer function and the shock absorption up through the spine, et cetera. That was probably 30 years ago. And uh, that wow. shock wave just travels through the whole spine. Yeah, interesting. And yeah. what about in, you know, we talk about potentially maybe in the future medications helping this. What about, have you seen or had clients where certain medications have led to worsening joints? You know, I mean, obviously... Um, I, I've heard this with corticosteroids, right? I, I've heard this with um, some biologic medications that are really helpful when necessary, but oftentimes comes with side effects. Have you had clients who have suffered from uh, medication-induced joint issues? I'm going to say apparently, and, and also some disease processes as well, but I'm not, that's not well outside of my uh, area of expertise. And when I run into that, I refer to the uh, experts. Okay. So yes, I see it to answer your question. Do I do anything about it? Yes, I refer. Mm, okay. Gotcha. And you would refer to maybe like a rheumatologist or an orthopedic doctor from there? Ah, it depends on what my preliminary read is on the uh, situation. So if it's a rheumatic uh, type I would, uh, yes, very definitely go to a rheumatologist. And I have a Rolodex, <laughs> a bit of an old-fashioned guy. Yeah. And uh, I, I wouldn't send them to any neurologist or uh, rheumatologist or 
uh, chiropractor or a nutritionist or uh, a, um, uh, a regenerative medicine specialist. I have my favorites and they're in my Rolodex. Okay, nice. And I have them around the world, by the way. Yeah. But most of my clients are not from within, you know, two or 300 kilometers of where I live. Most of them right. have a, a major trip to make it in. So yeah, I, sure. I, I referral Rolodex for Europe and wow, particularly nice. the States. So I wanted to save potentially one of the best, most interesting topics for last year, which is to say the idea of posture and form. And so we talked very briefly about that, but, um, yeah. I, you know, I've seen in more recent years, actually even physical therapists who I know who recently graduated have told me that it is still taught to them that posture is really important. And then I've seen some who, maybe they're saying some of the newer research is saying it's not as important. And I, I know maybe there was a little debate at one time with barbell medicine and, and whatnot with form and how important it is. So, and we don't have to go over all of that, but just I, there may be two different topics, general posture throughout the day and lifting form. Um, maybe starting with posture makes the most sense. So I know that could be like you said before, paragraphs and paragraphs, of, if not its own podcast, but um, the importance of good quote unquote, posture throughout the day well i was going to do the lifting one uh first sure but let's, let's uh, first if you'd like okay well um actually no we'll start the other one uh just general posture throughout the day and that'll help me introduce some of the foundational science Cool. So it's true. There are some studies in the last few years that suggest posture and uh, back pain are not that heavily linked. The studies were on nonspecific low back pain. Do you think posture matters for nonspecific leg pain? No. <laughs> it could be they have a displaced uh patella or a torn acl or they've got a fractured fibula um you know uh, no one talks about non-specific leg pain and i don't think they should talk about non-specific back pain in order to run a randomized control trial or perform any statistical analysis the first requirement is that the groups are homogeneous non-specific back pain don't cut that level uh, necessary to be eligible for a statistical uh, study, but th this is often overlooked. So there are studies that will take uh, a, a group of non-specific low back pain people, look at different postures and say, well, there's no link here. Uh, Peter O'Sullivan, uh, a professor in Australia, did a study that showed that, but Pete also took groups of non-specific low back pain people and made them specific with very simple subcategories. One might be this group over here is triggered by flexing their spine, which is a, a posture. This group over here is triggered by extending their spine. Usually they're a little bit older, um, but nonetheless, now when you have an extension triggered subcategorized patient and they go into extension, guess what? Posture is very statistically important. So it's all masked in studies on nonspecific low back pain. So that's the first point. You have to study 
um, subclassified groups to make them homogeneous, which is really representative of clinical back pain to populations. The next one would be uh, the fact that a lot of back pain is a delayed response to exposure. Consider smoking. Back in the 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s, the tobacco lobby was very successful at holding the position that cigarettes were not causing cancer. If you look at a group of young people, there is no link between smoking cigarettes and cancer. It's right. a delayed effect. And so it is with many subcategories of back pain. So there are studies that show, oh, well, kids who are a bit slouchy uh, or whatever uh, have no different uh, back pain incidents than, than students who, who avoid that. But if you did that with smoking, there wouldn't be a relationship either. But if you wait a few years, you will find that there is uh, a relationship because of the uh, exposure over time. Um, now to switch tacks a little bit, posture change migrates stress. So let's talk about static posture. Let's say you lay in bed and you don't change position. You will slowly get uncomfortable. And if you don't change position, that discomfort turns to pain. And if you don't change position, that pain turns to injury. And it's called a bed sore because you've now created a stress concentration that over time will break down the tissue. So, so it is with static posture. I remember being challenged by a student and he said, oh, I just saw this thing on YouTube that posture doesn't matter for back pain. And I said, oh, really? Um, I gave him a, th a thing. I can't remember what it was, but it weighed a pound. And I said, good, would you stand? And what I want you to do is stand round your shoulders and I want you to hold that thing there for the next 40 minutes of this lecture. After about 10 minutes, he put it down and I pointed out, I said, sir, what, what, what's, what's the problem? And he says, well, I'm, I'm in so much pain. And I said, did posture matter? And he said, yeah, it does. Okay, <laughs> you made your point. Um, so, you know, I go back to the, 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 the sport of jujitsu, which is migrating, skillfully migrating stress from one tissue to another through posture, changing your opponent to the point where they submit. And unbeknownst to many people, they are doing jujitsu on themselves, migrating posture. You know, I can sit upright and I'm using muscles to sit upright. After a while, my muscles will ache. They're becoming fatigued. Uh, if I keep staying there, that fatigue will turn to real pain. But if I change my posture and then I slouch for a little while, I cross my legs, I'm migrating the posture so I don't build up cumulative stress in any single spot. So sometimes it's posture change uh, that matters. Now let's get down to lifting. And this is really problematic for me. There are some people who are suggesting it's okay to have deviated postures, non-neutral postures when you're deadlifting. And they have various uh, scientific explanations for it. With what, if, if you really understood the biomechanics, you would see the flaws and I can or cannot get into them. If that's your choice, that would be a bit more sure. um, detail than you're looking for. But anyway, when you uh, 
go over the history of someone who's hurt their back deadlifting, the vast majority of the time they will say, I was out of position. In other words, the thrust line, or there was something odd about that lift. No one had coached them in a strategy to make the correction. So the thrust line is the line that goes from the bar, the center of the bar, straight down to the center of the earth. It's through gravity. The joint, as it's positioned away from that thrust line, determines the joint load. Uh, the curvature of the spine determines the stress distribution in the annulus fibers, on the facet joints, uh, on the muscles, uh, etc. Um, what defines good posture? It's one that spreads out the stress concentration evenly. If you lose that position, it migrates stress from a tissue that can bear high load onto a more vulnerable one. And then the person says, oh yeah, that's, that's the, the, the time I uh, hurt my back. Now I wanna get into, is there any evidence to say that lifting poorly or lifting in a compromised position or with more flexion or whatever it happens to be gives you resilience for life? I don't know of a single study that shows that. I only know in the occupational literature, which is much more robust than the sport deadlifting literature because mm -hmm. it doesn't exist. But when you look at awkward lifting postures, uh, in all sorts of industries, the more awkward, the more flexion, the greater the incidence of uh, back pain. We did a study at Chrysler on fellows who chrome car bumpers. So they lifted uh, car bumpers. Let's see, you're American, so we'll talk in pounds. The, yeah. They weighed 70 or 80 pounds, 40 kilos. And uh, out of the 70-some-odd workers, 20-some-odd had every year an acute back attack sufficient to miss a few days or a few weeks uh, from work. Do you think the ones who never had a back injury versus the ones who did were stronger or weaker? No, the ones who had recurrent back injury were stronger because mm. when we measured the stress distributions, when they lifted, they had more load in their backs. They were bent over, flexing their spine, lifting with their back. The ones who, who didn't have back recurrent uh, acute repeated episodes had weaker back muscles, but they had, they used their hips more. They lifted with their hips. They braced their spines into what we would call a little bit more of a neutral, non-deviated yeah. uh, posture. So we can look at the adaptation schedules. It's a pretty bad bet to make. Let's do a deadlift with awkward form to try and stimulate robustness for life. Rather than having an, a, a, a very thorough evaluation of what you and your body needs to be resilient, maybe you need more hip mobility. Maybe you need more ankle and foot mobility. If we then repeated that deadlift with elevated heels and they can lift with better form, would you say, oh, well, let's lift with bad form and we'll try and fix your ankles? Or would you try and do foot exercise targeting so that the mobility then comes into the ankle joint and you can lift better. Do you see 
the assessment reveals the non-optimality. So you see my point. Yeah. Figure out what is the mechanism and attack that very strategically, but never compromise lifting form. But throughout your life, move. I get all of that. Yeah. But the question is, can you become more robust for life? I would argue that the literature shows no, you actually uh, will get hurt more. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think, and I don't know specifically. I don't know who, if I explained that very well, but. Uh, no, I think you did. And I I don't know what specific people are putting out there to deadlift with bad form. Um, I just, I know, like I said before, there was the whole barbell medicine debate. And one thing that I did find was that I, I believe both of you, while you might differ in certain areas, you both seem to take the approach of, okay, so if a movement is hurting, you can back off from that and maybe gradually introduce it over time, you know, assuming that it's not triggering pain too much, um, modifying form, maybe doing a, an accessory type exercise, depending on what, like, let's take a, a squat if it's hurting. It seems like maybe both of you would take the approach of slowly implementing maybe an increased range of motion over time um, and, and having your body adapt to a lower stimulus until you can get used to it. Would, would you say you agree in those areas? It depends on the goal. Uh, it depends on the injury history. It depends on their leverage ratios, leg length to torso length. Uh, it depends on a lot of things. So uh, there are some body types that are so better suited for certain postures. Um. You know, I, I can get into those specifically if you like. That'd be interesting, um, I think, yeah. Yeah. If you're a very, uh, here's a, here's something else as well. If you take a thin willow branch, you can bend it back and forth and uh, it won't create stress. But a willow branch will not support much compression. It just bends and buckles. Mm -hmm. If you take a thick branch, it'll bear a lot of compression, but it won't bend. It will shatter because it's neutral axis to the outside of the branch is a big radial distance. So the stresses are very high. So when you see uh, someone saying, well, there's a fellow on YouTube or who did 10,000 sit-ups and his spine didn't explode. Now, do you think he has a thick spine or a thin spine? I don't need to go to YouTube because I know the only plausible answer. He has to be a slender spine, small right, person. Right, to be able to bend, yeah, so. See what I mean? Because that's architecturally the only body type that would do well under those situations. Do you know, and I've worked with quite a few of them, uh, you know, the World Strongman competitions? Sure. You're aware of uh, uh, many uh, great deadlifters and, and uh, squatters and whatnot. Do you know any of them that train with sit-ups? I'm not aware if they do. No, I, well, I, I don't know a single one because the adaptations of that deviated posture wouldn't allow them to get the stiffness. And if they were skinny, willowy people, they wouldn't be world strong men competitors. Right, right. You needed a certain stiff, large, thick skeleton to uh, even start with that. That's a self uh, or, or a, uh, ecological selection uh, issue. But um, anyway, uh, I don't know if, if that, uh, 
It does. Well, I was going to ask even just to kind of go a little further on that. Do you feel like that's mostly a genetic thing? You know, people who are, let's say in this example, thicker or thinner, or do you think it's largely based on the training that they've done for years, then allowing them or kind of putting them into one of those groups? Well, it's, it's both. When you look at the uh, podium winners at the Olympics, do the uh, shot putters look like the discus throwers? Do they look like the javelin throwers? Do they look like the hundred meter women? Do they, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you can look at an athlete on the podium and almost guess the sport that they were in. Right. Okay. So that speaks to the, the mechanical advantage and disadvantage and injury resilience of certain body types. Then there's the question, can you adapt to do a physicality through Uh, repeated exposure and uh, training. Well, I gave you the example of myself and doing one deep squat a day. If I didn't do that, I would lose it. There's no question. I've been there. Mm. Um, But if I did more deviation with load, I wouldn't uh, uh, keep the ability to do it because I'd be injured before I regained my ability. And that's the dance that I think we're talking about now. Where do you cross the line? And, and go to injury. And uh, certainly, as I tried to point out, the occupational literature says uh, you're, you don't have infinite capacity in your body. You're doing this dance between adapting or becoming injured. Yeah. And, uh, uh, purposefully uh, being lax on deadlift form will, for most people, tip the scale to becoming injured before they adapt. Yeah. Which is, you know, an interesting way to look at it. Not even, I should say it's uh, it's a good way to look at it because I do think sometimes there is this idea that your body will adapt to anything. And, and obviously, you know, the human body is very adaptable and we see some extreme examples of it that are kind of amazing, but you would have to wonder where is that limit going to be? And as you mentioned with the orthopedic surgeons, right? Like who's there? It's the people who have, as you mentioned, kind of rusted out or worn out. And there's no question that the highest level of athletes tend to live a lot of their later years with some chronic issues. I mean, depending on the sport, of course, but, um, you know, even, even just other things you see, you know, um, high, high level cardiovascular athletes, they actually can often have more, uh, cardiomyopathy and arrhythmias and things like that. Like everything, there is an extreme and you can adapt, but there's probably a point where you have to be mindful. Yes, uh, that's all I, I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Stu McGill, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Um, you know, like I said, I, I've got your book, Back Mechanic, but I know you've got others. Do you want to tell people where they can find more of your work? Well, uh, I'm, I'm not a social media person. Uh, I spend my time seeing back pained people and trying to contribute and stay current with the uh, science. Uh, Our website, backfitpro.com, is where uh, if you're a back pained person, you can enter the portal through that, and it shows you where the uh, clinicians are in the world that we've trained in uh, our approaches, Uh, and and that is a very thorough assessment, and then winding down the pain and rebuilding athleticism in a way specific to their particular 
uh, pain pathway. Um, if you're a scientist or a trainer or a clinician, you enter the uh, website through another portal and uh, there we have resource materials on uh, spine function and how to assess and, and training techniques and those sorts of things. Um, so that will help people if they're looking for a, a clinician or uh, some support materials. The book Back Mechanic I wrote for the lay public. Um, it will help about 95% of people with a broad spectrum of back injuries and pain, but not all. Uh, no book can. Sure. Uh, and, and there are some people who, uh, you know, not everything can be fixed. Yeah. And that's, that, that's the reality of it. Um, anyway, that's about all I can really uh, suggest there. I've done uh, hundreds of podcasts. For yeah. People. You can find those. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Stu. It was great talking. Okay, Dave, I would love to talk about teeth health and dentistry yeah. <laughs> and the biomechanics you do, moving teeth around. And uh, uh, I, I guess I should be flossing and using uh, Listerine mouthwash after I floss and squish it around between my teeth. Is that going to help me to maintain my best gum health and therefore cardiac health and all the rest of it? Yeah, well, I'm obviously I'm glad you mentioned the cardiac health because not everybody's aware about the correlation there. And uh, well, you know, I'm a Pete Mattia fan. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> exactly. Right, right. Although it, it is really interesting, like, and I will also add just because you mentioned Listerine, there's so much marketing even within dentistry. I mean, there must be, I think I just saw recently there were 60 some different toothpastes and they all theoretically had this different benefit. And, and the reality is it comes down to a few things. And this is probably the case for some medical doctors as well. But the reality is if, if people did the basics, brushing twice a day, flossing, not just, you know, drinking sugary drinks all day, I would have maybe a 10th of the amount of work to do. So thankfully it, it is something that outside of some maybe genetic cases and whatnot, most of it is, is very preventable and easy to stay on top of. Sounds like the way I answered a few questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up some good hygiene and use some common sense. Yeah, right, right. Pretty much, pretty much. I, uh, I'm i wondering, Stu, I, I mean, obviously you've got your whole facility there, but I do selfishly have to wonder just as, as a dentist, I'm curious how much you, you see that with uh, people who have careers that are very physical. Cause when I was 20 and I shadowed my dentist and he was telling me how it's so physical and I'm 20 at the time. So I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And now at 32, I can't believe how worn out I am <laughs> after a full okay, week. Okay, Dave, I want you to keep this on the podcast because now we're talking about posture, exactly what I was talking about in the occupational literature. Are you adapting to the dentist's demand or are you becoming cumulatively traumatized at a micro level by it? I would say I am becoming cumulatively yes. traumatized. This is what happens in every single occupational study and the ones in sport just, they're there, but they're nowhere near as robust as the occupational. So please keep this because you're answering our own question about will you injure first or will you adapt first? And uh, I didn't even get into the adaptation schedules of different tissues and what the, the, the science that really helps you drive it towards success rather than more injury, the success being adaptation. 
So uh, I think you're answering your own question there. Um, I don't know if you know, but uh, quite a number of years ago, I was asked to be the keynote speaker. I was called up by the American Dental Association, the ADA, and they no said, way. Professor McGill, would you come and give a keynote lecture for us? And I said, well, I think you've got the wrong guy. I'm a spine biomechanist. I'm not a dentist. And they said, yeah, we know. Do you know what the number one premature, unwanted reason for retirement among dentists is? It's occupational back pain. They didn't yeah. adapt. They injured. Yeah. So... Uh, and then I got into the principles of uh, diversifying your training. Don't go to the gym and replicate the same rigors that you are exposed to all day long performing dentistry. Uh, I, I've seen over the years many little tricks. Instead of sitting on the dental stool, turn it around backwards and use the backrest mm. as a chest support when you're doing some of the longer uh, surgical um, uh, procedures, uh, et cetera. Uh, you blend in appropriate mobility, appropriate cardiovascular training. Um, you may not uh, enjoy this, but uh, I would say if you didn't lift weights and did some other things to undo the cumulative stress of being a dentist all day, you might have a different outcome. So there's a little bit of... Uh, would there be uh, examples there when you say undo, like things to undo some of that stress? Yeah, are you walking around more like a dentist all day long? Right. Are you able to thoracically extend and pull your hips through so that when you're standing, you are now taking the stress off rather than adapting to that forward uh, stooped chronic posture that you see in so many dentists who, who've applied the trade for a few years. So again, this, this is just a wonderful case study. Yeah. To, to answer our, uh, our uh, posture question. I want to show you something real quick. It's uh, I got it right here. These are what they're called ergonomic loops. And I don't know if you've seen these, but when we're working on patients all day, uh, these are actually relatively new. So um, I know some dentists don't wear any loops, which is kind of crazy to me, but these very cool looking glasses here. So they're prismatic. And so I can be upright like this and I'm actually looking down at my fingers. And so my posture is, you know, again, a good or bad posture. I'm certainly much more upright and, and I don't have that flexion going on. All well, day. I, I prescribe those to people to read a book. So they're called oh. easy readers and you can read a book down here. So those who have cervical neck problems, mm -hmm. it's eliminated. Yeah. They can do this and guess what? They don't adapt. They just become disabled. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, th those are uh, really neat and uh, strategic ergonomic aids. And uh, I, I haven't seen too many people adapt to doing that for <laughs> eight hours a day. But anyway, but Dave, please keep this segment. It's, sure. it's a very nice little, uh, little case study. But with yourself, uh, you can come by here. I'd be happy to see you. Uh, you seem to have quite a rapport with Brian Carroll. I can tell you Brian has become, or let me say this, he's shifted from being the best squatter on this planet to being a hell of a spine clinician. Yeah. He's fabulous. So uh, I, I go see Brian and uh, 
talk about lifting, but he will uh, assess you and uh, give you a pretty good idea on yeah. what to do. Yeah, yeah to, I thought of that too. Undo the rigors uh, of your job, and it's a tough one. I, I, I get it. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. Well, well, thank you again, Stu. Okay. Thanks for all you do, Dave. Okay. Yeah.